Well, hey, we're going to continue our sermon series entitled Compass, talking through, walking through the Sermon on the Mount, of walking through what it was that Jesus had to say. And so, over the last few weeks, we've been walking through this, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, walking all the way up through uh, chapter, uh, verse 30 of chapter 5 last week. Today, we're walking into the next verse, which is verse 31, and then all the way through the rest of the chapter. So, turn in your Bibles. How many of you have your Bibles with me today? Hold them up. Awesome, great, fantastic. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be in verse 31 in a moment as we continue walking through this passage. But before we jump into it, I want to also make sure you understand that what we're about to begin, and we started a little bit last week, but now, today, certainly, we're going to begin walking through some uh, kind of like set-apart moments from this sermon. Now, remember, Jesus delivered this entire sermon in one setting. It wasn't like He, you know, got to the end of chapter 5 and said, okay, we're going to take a break and we'll see you back next week. He walked all the way through 5, 6, and 7 all together. But in light of that, He also, and we're going to see this in just a few moments, while He was preaching this sermon, some of the elements of this sermon were stand-alone moments, stand-alone points, things that, that are not necessarily connected to one another other than the fact that they're connected in what it means to follow Christ day by day. And so today we're going to jump into four different areas, four different points from Jesus' sermon that are kind of like these little staccato statements that Jesus gave in this sermon. And we wanted to make sure that we tried to, you know, keep it from being controversial, to keep it from being, you know, like stepping on anybody's toes. And so the first one we're going to talk about is divorce. That was a joke, by the way, in case you didn't catch it. But we're going to talk about like some values that Jesus gave us in this sermon of things that we need to like recognize and kind of hold on closely, hold dearly to. And the first one he talked about right here, verse 31, is the value of marriage. That marriage is important, that marriage is a big deal, that marriage actually is something that if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, clearly uh, God gives us that statement that God made the male and female, and the male shall leave his wife and shall, um, stop, forgive, forgive me. There we go. We started already, didn't we? And the man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you next week. <laughs> I'm done. Okay. So that's what we're going to talk about today in this first part, the value of marriage, of why marriage is important. We know that marriage is a big deal to God. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to, uh, you know, to enter into in, in a way that, that it's not that big of a deal. It's not like this, you know, just, you know, spur of the moment decision. It's a big, big deal. And so let's see what Jesus has to say about marriage, talking about the value of marriage, verse 31 and verse 32. It says, furthermore, it has been said. Now remember, Jesus in this sermon, and we started it last week, he, he brings out something from the Old Testament, and then he clarifies it based on the new moment, the new season that we're in. He says, furthermore, it has been said. In other words, like you know in the law, the Old Testament, that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Like I said, we're not going to be controversial at all today in this passage. But remember this, this is God's Word, 
And if it's in God's Word, yes, we have to talk about it, and yes, we have to deal with it. And if it steps on people's toes, it's God stepping on toes. And so, in light of that, let's just kind of walk through here this passage, and again, start here, the value of marriage. And, and, and what we clearly see right up front is this, that God, uh, that Jesus actually here is kind of contrasting the old with the new. Now, in the Old Testament, marriage was something that was important, but it was kind of this hierarchical system where the man was more important than the woman. And men out here, if you begin to elbow your wives when I said that, I promise you that's grounds for divorce right there, okay? That, that men were more important than women back in the Old Testament, right? We look at Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives. In fact, some of them, history will tell us, he didn't even see some of them for several years. Again, guys, do not elbow your wives when I said that. Like, like he didn't even see some of them for several years' time because he had so many wives. Obviously, if he had 700 wives, that clearly lays out the groundwork for the fact that in that day and in that time, that there was that system, that hierarchical system, that men were more important than women. And in that time, literally a man could divorce his wife for any reason as long as he went through the prescriptive way of how to do it. Now, here we are in the New Testament times, first century AD, and in that same argument, the same conversations that were taking place back in the Old Testament, back in those Hebrew, you know, the early days of the law, it was still going on. In fact, there were two Pharisees, uh, Shemal and Hillel, that were having a fierce battle during this time, exactly in the time that Jesus spoke these words. Two different Pharisees, one named Shemal, one named Hillel. Now, Shemal believed this, that the only way that you could allow to actually divorce your wife is for, like what Jesus said, sexual immorality, okay? Now, Hillel was a different guy who had a different thought, and his idea, taking the Old Testament view, taking that, that, that longer look back of what was done in the past and, and kind of adding to it and, you know, changing a little bit, that his idea was that you can divorce your wife for pretty much any reason whatsoever. In fact, they actually even said that you could divorce your wife if she wasn't even a good cook, you can divorce your wife. Now, that would not fly today, would it? Right? I mean, that should not be the case, but there was this fierce battle that was going on, which is why I believe firmly that Jesus spent this time to accentuate this point and accentuate this moment. And Jesus said, clearly, there's only, there's only a, a legitimate reason here that, that you can divorce your wife, or again, it's, it's, it's cross-platform, so a man divorcing a woman or a woman divorcing a man, is it through sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality can take on lots of different forms. In fact, Jesus did not actually use the exact Greek word here for fornication. He actually used the word that talks about sexual immorality. It can take on lots of forms. Now, back in that day, probably they didn't have some of the problems that we have today with regards to the, the scope of sexual immorality. But clearly, as 1 Corinthians 6, that we talked about last week, that sexual sin is a sin unlike any other sin. It's a sin that is a sin against the own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying this. Now, if you go over into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you don't need to turn there. But in that passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul actually gives us a picture here. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 17. 17, sorry I said that wrong, in 1 Corinthians chapter 17, that Paul, again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he kind of brings about like in, in a full package of like what this really talks about if you read through that passage, and also he talks about the idea of desertion. Like, in, in other words, that if a man or a woman like walks out on, who leaves completely and, and walks away from the marriage bond, like that's the only prescribed, allowed element that could be 
for, you know, for a reason for divorce in the biblical sense. Now, so with that in mind, you understand that statement, this idea of what a lawful divorce looks like. What Jesus made clear, and I want you to hear what I'm about to say, because this is, again, God's Word, not mine, but I agree 1,000% with it. God's ideal, God's plan, God's intention was one man for one woman for one lifetime. That was God's plan, that was God's design, that was God's intention, His direction when He created. And by the way, I, I prompt, there was no nuance there with regards to one man and one woman. It was like one man, one woman, and not in the definitions that we have today of man and woman. It was God's definition. God created the male and female, and the two shall become one, that God intended for one man, for one woman, for one lifetime. Now, understand that was God's ideal. The problem is that we do not live in an ideal situation, do we? We live in a setting, a situation today where there is so much conflict and so many problems and so much people who, so many people who, who are having problems and, and fall into sin and fall into this category, that category, go to different things and, and dishonoring the value and the sanctity of marriage that we do not live in an ideal. So what we have to recognize and understand is how do we navigate the, the, the time and the season in which we live, which is the farthest thing we could possibly get from ideal. Now understand, Jesus made it clear. Here's when you can get divorced in a biblical grounds where, where literally like that, this is, is, is it's prescripted, you know, it's a prescription. Uh, you can do this. That's what he said. We talked about it a moment ago. Sexual morality, morality and desertion. But what about when a divorce happens that didn't come from that? Does that mean now that that woman or that man will live now in, in the history for the rest of life, the rest of time, that they're going to live in a perpetual state of, of adultery? Because it actually says, remember, that, that you cause them to live in adultery. Is there a perpetual or a continual adultery? Now here's what I would say, and again, according to God's Word, clearly we understand this. I do not believe for a minute that that is what Jesus is saying. I believe what Jesus is saying is this, that if you are divorced, if you get divorced, and it's not a biblical divorce, it's not divorce that flows from the biblical grounds, and you step into a, another marriage, into a remarriage, yes, obviously not God's ideal, yes, obviously that is a, a, a sinful step and a sinful state. But here's what's clear, 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 says this, that all of our sins are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I do not believe that when we break God's ideal, that therefore that we will never ever be able to be in God's ideal again. Does that make sense? So in other words, think of it this way. Let's take marriage and set it on the shelf for a moment, and let's talk about some other sin. Let's say that Rob, if Rob's down here on the front row, say, hi, Rob. Rob, Rob's right here. So Rob decided uh, this afternoon that he's going to leave here and he's going to go by a local restaurant. And because he might be short on cash, he's actually going to rob that restaurant. And he's going to steal money from that restaurant. Pick a good one, all right? And, and he's going to steal money from that restaurant. That's a sin. Do we all agree that's a sin? All right. So he steals, 
right? And then tonight when he gets home and Paula finds out that he just robbed a restaurant and she's like, I can't believe you did that, Rob. And he's like, man, I know I blew it. I'm so, that's just awful. I'm sorry, Paula. And then he gets on his knees before God and then he prays, God, forgive me of what I've done. Forgive me of the sin I stole. I should not have done that, God. Forgive me. What I believe clearly is this, is that God has forgiven him. Don't keep the money. But God has forgiven him. And he is not continuing to walk as a thief. He's not continuing to walk in sin because he has been forgiven of all of his sin according to God's word. That's what Jesus said. Not me, what Jesus said. Okay, so that statement, that picture, that, that dynamic that we just talked about, if it's true for this sin, then could it be true for other sins? Well, I think so because, again, the word all is thrown into that verse in 1 John 1, 9. And so, obviously, God's ideal is that Rob would never have robbed that store. That was God's ideal, but he messed up. He blew it. He did not walk in God's ideal. He messed up, but he got forgiveness, and God forgave him. Now, consequences, obviously there's consequences. Like, he's going to have to repay the money. And, if, you know, if he's not a very good thief, the cops are going to catch him, Right? <laughs> I'm not saying if you're a good thief, good for you. I'm just saying there's a chance that he's going to get caught, and he's going to have to pay the price. He's going to go to jail, right? You got it? Okay. So there's consequences, but he's forgiven. Now let's take it back over into this idea of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Jesus said, here's my ideal. Here's what I intended for things to be like. But you messed up, and you blew it. And maybe you, you did step into a situation where there was sin, and, and it destroyed a marriage. Okay, so if it destroys a marriage, does that mean now that I'm destroyed for the rest of time? The answer is no, if it is handled under the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I'm sorry for what I've done. There are some preachers, I've heard them say this, that if someone gets divorced, and it's not a biblical divorce, and then they get remarried, and then they get repentant of what they've done and they recognize what they've done. I've heard pastors and I've heard counselors actually will say, you should divorce that person and go back and be reconciled to the person before. Now, you can see like there's all kinds of issues there and all kinds of dynamics there. And I do not believe that that is what God's intention would be. Because then you're going to commit another sin, right, in order to go back and right the first sin. Right? And so, in other words, like certainly God would never say, okay, so Rob, you stole money from that store, from that restaurant, and maybe on the way home you went by and you bought a burger, and so therefore you don't have that money anymore. So now, Rob, because you're repentant and you want to get things right, you have to go rob another store in order to go pay back the first store. Doesn't make sense, does it? Same picture. And so that's the picture that we're getting here is God's ideal. There is an ideal. But if we do not live in the ideal and we mess up, which by the way, I don't, want to, I don't want you to hear me incorrectly, it is sin, okay? It is sin when we don't treat the marriage the way that God intended for marriage to be treated. It's, it's sin, okay? I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. I'm trying to nuance it. It is sin. But I'm a firm believer that sin exists and sin happens but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, with a repentant heart, with a, a turned heart, God can forgive all sin. I just ha I happen to believe that because I believe that's what God's words teach. In fact, that is what God's word teaches, that God will forgive. And so the uh, dynamic here, marriage, 
God's ideal, one man, one woman, one lifetime. You blow it. Does that mean that someone who has gotten married and then gotten divorced in an unbiblical setting, unbiblical situation, and now they've gotten remarried, does that mean like they're, they're just like completely forever cast out of the church? Absolutely not. And here's why I know that. Because as I look across this room of about, I don't know, 4,000 people, here's what I know. I know that every single one of you are sinners. Do you know that? And when you, when I've got 4,000 sets of eyes looking at me, guess what you ought to know? I'm a sinner. And what I know, there's no degrees of sin. Sin is sin is sin. Because sin is not an act. Sin is disobedience to God. It is doing what God has specifically told us not to do. That is sin. That's the element of sin. And so, in other words, every sin is equal before God. Consequences, all radically different, right? You've heard me say that before. You know, if, so if, if Rob over here steals from a store and gets thrown in jail, that's a consequence. If Emma, his daughter, steals a cookie when mom says don't eat the cookie, like, that's a sin because she disobeyed her mom, but it is not a sin that has the consequence that Rob has. Like, Emma's not going to go to jail because she stole a cookie. Rob is going to go to jail because he stole, you know, he stole the money. So the consequences are different, but sin is sin is sin. And if we're all sinners, here's what I know, that anyone who walks into this room and is a sinner, which is everyone, God has already clearly told us that we have a place in the kingdom of God. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful for the truth of God's Word? And so, absolutely we can be active. We can serve. There's only two positions, two elements within the body of Christ where a divorced person who is, you know, a divorced person cannot serve, okay? Only two places. And it goes to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it talks about this. It talks about a pastor, and it talks about a deacon. Those two positions are the two positions that cannot be held by a divorced person. When you look at that statement, that the pastor, the deacon, both, the same declarations between the two, that they have to be a husband of one wife. Now, I know that there are people out there who are trying to nuance those statements and say, well, it doesn't really mean that, and it doesn't mean—yes, it does mean that. Look in the original Greek languages. The Greek language there for the word husband is the word anera, which literally means man. There's no way to nuance that, right? And then the second one, so a husband of, a man of one wife, the Greek word there for wife literally is the Greek word for woman. And so, in other words, there's no way to get around it. There's no way to, like, it is a husband of one wife, period, those two positions. Every other position, every other place, every other opportunity for service can be held by a person who has not walked through God's ideal for marriage. Now, that's good news. Now, yes, there's a prescription, and yes, there's an argument, well, we're not going to get into it today, about the element of whether, you know, whether a woman can be a pastor. I mean, that's a whole nother, again, the word man, the word woman, I mean, it's very clear. That's not a discussion for today. That's a discussion for another day. But God's Word clearly says it, a husband of one wife. So, only two positions. Every other place within the body of Christ, a person who's been divorced can serve. Why? Because 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's what Jesus was clearly saying in this statement. Here's what he was trying to make very clear. Marriage is important. And while in the Old Testament, in fact, under the law, if there was adultery in a marriage under the law, not only was it permitted to get divorced, it was required to get divorced. 
In other words, you didn't have the option of reconciliation. What Jesus was clarifying here is, oh, yeah, you do have the option for reconciliation. Why? Because I have now, and I'm going to pay the price, the penalty for that sin forever, once and for all, through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, through His death, burial, and resurrection. So therefore, God's ideal is this, if at all possible in a marriage, reconcile. No matter what happens, do your best. Is it always possible? No. There are times when someone's going to walk out, and it doesn't matter what you do and how hard you work and how faithful you are and how good you are, that they will never be able, and they will never have the opportunity, they will never come back to that marriage, and there's nothing you can do about it. So Jesus is like, all, do, do your level best to reconcile, but if not, you're not done. And so no, you're not living in a, because I know we live in a, you know, a day and age where it's, you know, depending on the statistics you look at. 40 to 45 to 52 percent uh, a marriage rate in the United States. Now, those numbers skew, obviously, again, because they're not broken down basically within the church or out the church, but, but for the most part, about half the marriages in our country end in divorce. And, and so clearly we understand, like, we live in the, in the realism of today, and God's Word, 1 John 1, 7, 1 John 1, 9, clearly gives us the picture. The Scriptures also tell us that we're a new creation. All the old is passed away and everything is made new. We can continue to walk in the body of Christ, to serve in the body of Christ, to represent the body of Christ, to be exactly who God intended for us to be, even if we mess up. But we should always seek God's ideal. And so I know in this room today, there's probably some husbands and wives that are sitting here that are probably walking through some difficult moments. You're probably walking through some conflicts and some trials, and maybe one of you, or maybe both, are sitting here thinking, it's over, it's done, I'm tired of this, I can't take it anymore. I want to tell you what God's Word says. God's Word says this, do your best to reconcile. Try to work it out. It's worth it. It's God's perfect plan. It's God's perfect design. It's God, what God wants for you. And I know it's tough. Marriage is tough. I've been married 30 years. It's tough. My dad used to say this when he was talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And here's what he would say when, when my wife, when my mom, his wife, Mason, when they got married, Mason and I sat down and we had a conversation. We decided that divorce was never an option. And then he would say this, now, murder a few times maybe, but never divorce. And he would joke about that. Why? Because marriage is not easy. I've been married 30 years. Man, it's not easy. There are moments when it's like, you, I get it, right? But man, God's ideal is to bring one man and one woman together to walk through all the conflicts and all the calamities and all the trials and all the mountaintops and all the valleys and to experience all the goodness of God in every single moment and to do it as a partnership, to do it as a husband and a wife, a man and a woman that God brought together that no matter what the world might throw their way, they're going to make it. That's God's ideal. And that's what we should long for. It's what we should shoot for. It's what we should work for. It's what we should try to do our very best to get to. But if not, don't lose hope. If not, don't be discouraged, because God still has a place. Now, understand that God still has a place, but there has to be that repentance, and there has to be that moment where you recognize, God, I'm sorry, I've sinned. God, I'm sorry, I know what I've done is wrong, and I'm sorry for it, but God, today, forgive me, and and God, I promise I, I go and sin no more. And you have that repentant, truly repentant heart, and God will still use you no matter what. It's good news. 
So the value of marriage, it's a big deal. The value of marriage is something that's, that is, is in, intended to be a, a perfect plan that God has for us. Now let's keep moving. The rest of the three, by the way, good news. They're not controversial at all, right? Okay, the next one. The value of truth. Look what it says in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said, again, the old times, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform, perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven uh, or, his, or God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, understand when Jesus was saying this, do not swear, he's not talking about the idea of, of curse words. You know, that's not the language that he's using here. Jesus is not saying, oh, you can't cuss. Now, by the way, please, I'm not saying go cuss, okay? That's not what I'm saying. You got it. What Jesus is saying is this. Back in those days, again, Old Testament days, that they would make declarations. They would would swear to something. And what they would say is, I promise you I'm going to do this. And if they didn't quite mean it, they would say, and I swear on Jerusalem I will do this. I swear on my own head, I will do this. I swear on my friend's life, I will do this. And they would say those things as like a very serious and a very intentional, a very deliberate statement. Like, I am absolutely going, you can take me at my my word on this. But the nuance here is this, is that there were also moments, oaths that they would take where they would say, I swear on God. I swear on God heaven. Now, the reason that the difference here is important, because when they swear on their head, when they swear on their friend, when they swear on, you know, on my life and all those kinds of things, like they might say it and people might take it as being a big deal, but in the back of their mind, they had an out. Like it wasn't as serious as when you swore on the name of God. Like if you say, I, you know, I promise you as God is my witness, I will do this. Now, when they made that statement, you could pretty much take it to the bank they were going to do it. But any other type of statement that they would make, like you didn't know if they were telling the truth or not, and they could get out. There was a nuance. There was, a, there, there was a, an escape hatch. So what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying like, don't promise anything to anyone. He's not saying, hey, like be a person who, you know, who, who makes a statement, makes an oath and promises, I will do this. Here's what he's saying, is that you don't need to swear on anything or promise on anything, because as a follower of Jesus Christ, you should walk in integrity, and when you say, I'm going to do it, that should be enough. Now, we live in a day and age, they did then, we do now, where people will promise things all the time, and you never really know if they're going to pull it off or not. I mean, I've heard it said, and it's a sad statement, I've heard it said before, like, man, be careful when you do business with Christians, man, you're going to get taken, you know, you can't trust those Christians. You know, we've all heard kind of that little nuanced statement that we've heard over and over again. Here's what Jesus is saying. Oh, no, no, no. If you're a, if you're a member of the body of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you say something, your word should be your bond. That if you say it, do it. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And you don't need to swear on anything. You don't need to promise, you know, as God is my witness. You don't understand I me. Mean, I promise you on my, you know, my mother's life. I'm going to, no, do, don't, don't do that stuff. Jesus said, forget that stuff. Just be a man or a woman of integrity, the value of truth. And so obviously what he's making very clearly statement, a clear statement here, and we find it all through scripture is like, hey, dishonesty destroys. 
Like, be a person who speaks truth, and when you speak it, if you say it, then do it, and don't back out on it. Don't fall back by the wayside on it. Like, don't let people down. Let your yes be yes. If you say you're going to do it, you do it. And if you can't do it, then don't say you're going to do it and then back out. Just simply say no. Be a man or woman of integrity. He was demanding integrity in all situations, which I think is a pretty good plan, don't you think? Especially for Rob down here, because Rob's a thief. The value of truth. Now, let's keep moving. Verse 38, the value of restraint. The value of restraint. Look what it says, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, the law, the Old Testament law, had created a system whereby uh, revenge, retaliation was allowed, but not only allowed, it was required. That if someone hurt you, if someone stole something from you, that you had no choice, that you had to actually do eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you steal, man, you cut off the hand. There are still countries today that live by that law in a different, the Sharia law, live in a different type of setting, but they still live by that law. So again, we go back to our example of our resident thief over here. Here's Rob. And so Rob, today, he's going to steal from that restaurant. And so according to the Old Testament, here's what we do with Rob. When Rob gets home, man, we cut his arm off. He might be repentant. He might be, oh, man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. He might have given the money back. He might have given it back with interest. It doesn't be probably not because he's a thief. But either way, <laughs> either way, the, 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 pun, the penalty here, the punishment here, cut his hand off. Cut his off. Like, so he can't do it again. That's what the Old Testament said. What Jesus said, oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Like, if Rob steals from you, like, don't try to cut his hand off. Like, show forgiveness. It says, you know, if he hits you on the right side, man, turn the other cheek, let him hit you again. Now, please don't get me wrong. That does not mean that if you walk into a situation where someone comes up to you and and literally punches you, that you're to sit back and say, excuse me, hold my Bible for a minute. Yeah, go ahead and hit me there. Yeah, please, God tell me, hit me again. That's, come on, that is not what God is telling us. If someone breaks into my house and my family's there, my wife is there, my kids are there, and they come in and they want to do harm to my family, and they want to harm my wife, and they want to harm my kids. Some people could say this verse says, well, you, know, you just got to let them do it because you know, God says, turn the other cheek. I'm going to tell you something. You break into my house, come after my wife and my kids, you're going to meet someone in my house that you're not going to want to meet, and it's Mr. Smith, Mr. Wesson. <laughs> I'm just telling you. And, and I know, I know, I know there are some people out there that say, I can't believe he said it. Try me. Not because I would want to hurt anyone, but because I have a responsibility and a duty from God to protect what God has given to me. And I will protect my children to the nth degree. I will protect my wife to the nth degree. God is not saying, Jesus is not saying, like, hey, just turn the, let them beat you up and you can't do anything. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, be a person who forgives. Be a person who's not always looking to to get back at someone. When someone does you wrong, it's not an opportunity for revenge. Like there's so many people that say, oh, I'm going to get them. Oh, I'm going to show them. Why? What's the point? Protect, obviously, self-defense. Absolutely, man. Protect you. Protect your family. I get it. But understand this. Like if someone hurts you, 
That does not give you license. It does not give you the opportunity. It does not give you permission to then figure out how you can destroy that person. And there are people within the body of Christ today that when someone does them wrong, which by the way, people will always do you wrong, that there are people within the body of Christ today that they long for the opportunity, I'm going to show them. And they're looking for the way to pay them back revenge. And Jesus says, stop. Don't do it. Why? Because as a member of the body of Christ, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we should live differently. I mean, let's be honest. We've got a pretty good example here. Because there's this person that I read about that he was arrested without having done anything. That he was beaten by those who arrested him for no reason. He didn't resist. He didn't run. He didn't fight back. And yet they beat him with their fists. And they hit him with sticks. They continued to make fun of him. They humiliated him in front of everyone who gathered in that place. They took thorns and, and, and ripped into his flesh. And then they killed him. And do you think Jesus had the opportunity at any moment along the way for revenge? Oh, you bet. Do you think Jesus could have retaliated any second? Oh, man, count on it. I mean, it would have been a cataclysmic event, man. Like, you know, they're sitting there beating Jesus and he's sitting there, you know, with his hands behind his back. And all of a sudden, man, he could call down a legion of angels to come and destroy every single one of them. I mean, he could have done what, but he didn't. Why? Because he turned the other cheek. Because he was different. Because he had a purpose to represent the purpose of God. Let me just tell you something. When someone does you wrong... And then you sit there and you look for that opportunity for revenge. Take a second and ask yourself the question. If I get revenge, if I retaliate, if I go back and hurt because I can't, because I've got the opportunity, because I know how to do it. Let me ask you a question. Are you representing God in that moment? Or are you representing self? Are you representing the basest level of humanity? Oh, I'm going to show him. Or are you representing the one who laid down his life to show mercy. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. Now I've gone over today, so I'm going to quickly jump into this last section here. The value of love. The value of love. And this one I think is an easy one. I think pretty much everyone will get this. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Go back up to that verse, verse 44 again, and let me read that statement. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus is saying it clear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Man, that's a hard thing to do. It's easy to love those that you get along with. It's easy to love those that you like. It's easy to love those that are kind. It's easy to love those that are nice. It's easy to love those who tell you you're great. It's easy to love those that are cheering you on. But boy, it's hard to love those who are constantly nitpicking and beating you up and complaining and criticizing and mocking and making fun. It's hard. 
people who are coming after you and trying to destroy you, it's hard to love them. But Jesus said, do it. Got to be honest, I've got a, a great story of a picture of that in my own life. My dad, who, you know, is, is a very outspoken pastor, and uh, from you know, those of you who knew him, and he, you know, he preached for 50 plus years and, and was faithful in ministry, and along the way, because he never, you know, he never compromised preaching the word of God, there were people who came after him and didn't like him, people who complained about him, people who argued and tried to destroy him. One of those guys was a guy named Larry Flint. Larry Flint was a publisher of Hustler Magazine and a lot of other magazines and, uh, that were pornographic in nature, a guy who, who just completely, and everything that he did, it was the antithesis of everything that was preached in this room or any other church that believes the Bible. And he came after my dad. And he did some things to my dad that were, um, I can't even discuss them here, how bad they were. And he came after my dad because he wanted to destroy my dad. In his own words, he talked about how he wanted to completely crush and destroy my dad and people like my dad. In other words, people, Christians, people who preach the word of God. And, and there was this journey that they went through where it was like, man, he was just after him, after him, after him. And what's really weird is like my dad, like he, he never stopped loving Larry. Made no sense. Got to be honest with you, I like it totally confused. I was with them one time in, a, in an event down in Boca Raton, Florida. And they were there and they were doing a debate. They were sitting on the stage and so there was a moderator and there was Larry Flint and there was my dad and they're sitting there and they're, you know, arguing about issues and arguing about things and arguing about the topics and the things of the day. And then afterwards, after the event, dad and I went into the hotel restaurant to have lunch and I didn't really know it at the time, but we ended up going in and having lunch with Larry Flint sitting at a table, just about four or five of us. Larry's wife was there and assistant and dad and, and me. And we're sitting there, and I thought, man, this, the debate's going to continue, man. I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to, you know, just watch these two go at it all during lunch. You know, I'm going to get me a, you know, prime rib sandwich and just have fun, watch, watch the battle. And, and what was weird is they sat there, and they just talked and laughed. They talked about baseball. They talked about diets. Uh, Larry gave my dad some diet-in advice. Didn't work, but he gave him some diet-in advice. <laughs> and they're sitting there talking, and it was weird because they were talking kind of like friends. And it made no sense. I couldn't understand it. And then we were about to finish the lunch and dad said, well, we got to run because we got to catch a flight uh, at the airport to fly back to Lynchburg. And, and Larry said, well, you know, I'm flying to New York in, in my plane. How about, just, just, I'll just give you a ride. Just fly with me and I'll drop you off in Lynchburg. I'm like, okay, this is strange. And so then we go out and we get on this big, huge Gulfstream jet, beautiful jet. And we walk in, it was, you know, it was a big black jet on the side that had Hustler, you know, had that little Hustler logo. And I thought, oh, that, there's a picture, right? You know? <laughs> Jerry Falwell, right into the Hustler Valley, you know. And so we walk in, and we have a seat there in the plane. There's, again, just four or five of us, and we, we take off, and we're sitting there. And again, I'm like, like, number one, I'm sitting there thinking, is God going to allow this plane to fly? I don't know. But I'm sitting there watching as they're having a conversation. And again, the man, they're talking and laughing and having a good time, good conversation. And, and it was just really strange. It was odd. And we got here, landed in Lynchburg, and got out of the plane, and... and Dad and I got in the car, we're driving away from the airport, and I said, Dad, like, how, how, can, you, how can you do that? Like, here's a guy who, who believes everything that you don't, does everything that you preach against, like, clearly, like, does all the stuff that the Bible says don't do. Like, how can you be his friend? And Dad said something to me in that moment that has marked me for the rest of my life. He said this, because there's going to be a moment in Larry's life 
when he's going to be down and out and he's going to be hurting and he's going to feel like everybody in the world has walked out on him and he's going to reach for the phone to pick up to try to find someone to call that could be of help and be an encouragement to him. I want to earn the right to be that call. I want to earn the right to be that call. Let me read to you again what Jesus said. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. My dad prayed that he would have the opportunity of leading Larry Flint to Christ. I don't think that that ever took place before my dad went to heaven. But here's what I know. I know that in the day right after my dad passed away, one of the people, one of the first persons who called to offer their condolences to my mom and to let us know that they were thinking of us and cared about my dad and thought he was was Larry Flint. And a, day, a couple of days later, he wrote an article in the Los Angeles Times. A person who had written many times before, I want to destroy the guy, talking about my dad. And he wrote an article talking about how much he loved my dad. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those, those who try to harm you. Pray for those. Why? Because you're not representing you. You're representing Christ. And that's what Christ would have all of us do. So today, points of application. Man, just recognize this. Clearly in our journey, in this unrealistic, uh, unideal life and world in which we live, recognize the challenges within your marriage are not an opportunity to walk out. They're an opportunity to lean in. Number two, being known as a man or a woman of your word is far more valuable than taking the easy way out. Third, in conflict, look for paths to reconciliation, not highways to revenge. Number four, loving others will give you greater joy than you could ever imagine. Those four statements are on that screen, and I recommend you take a picture of them. Write them down. Take them with you. Because if you can apply those four principles in your daily journey and everyday life, here's what I know. I know your life will be far greater than you could ever possibly imagine if you simply follow those principles. And understand that. Understand this, I mean. So those words that you see on that screen are words that I wrote. They're just words that I wrote down, but, but understand this. They're really not my words at all. Because all I did is I put into this synopsis of these words exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, oh, you've heard to do it this way, but I tell you, do it differently. Live that way and honor Christ every step of the way. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it corrects us, the way that it challenges us, and the way that it steps on our toes. God, your word sometimes hurts us because we need to be hurt. God, sometimes it punches us in the gut when we need to be punched because of how we're living and in a way that does not honor you. And so, God, I pray that today that these words that you've given to us are words that would do just that in all of our lives. Lord, help us to live according to your principles, not ours. Help us to run through this journey of life, God, running after your way, not our own. 
And God, as a result, I pray that you would bless, encourage, and strengthen us in ways that we could never imagine and could never expect. And God will give you the praise for it. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, in a moment we're going to stand together, sing, the altar's open, our team gathering here. And I know there are probably some people here today that we've talked a lot about today, how we represent Christ. But, but I want to make this clear. The only way you represent Christ is if you're a person who has, at some point in your journey, that you've made the declaration, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that He died and that He rose again, that you called on Him to save you. That makes you a representative of Christ. That makes you a part of the body, the family of of God. If you've never done that, it doesn't exclude you. It doesn't push you to the corner. In fact, that really is nothing more than a great invitation to join. Because the Bible says that the reason Jesus came, His own words, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you've never come to that moment of declaration that you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died and that he rose again, then you fall into that category that would be called lost. But the good news is this, is that you don't have to stay there. Because the only way to come out of the category of being lost is to believe in Christ, and then you'll be found, and then you'll be a part of the body. And so today, if you're here and you've never made that declaration, you've never believed that truly in your heart, our team is here. We would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. And I'm going to invite you in a moment when we stand just to step out and to come down and to talk with one of them. Maybe today you're here and you've been living in unrepented sin. You've been walking through, whether it's anger, whether it's hatred, whether it's a, maybe it's an adulterous situation, maybe it's a marriage that you've not been honoring the way God intended for you to honor. Today, God's word clearly calls us to repentance. It calls us to change. It calls us to value what we may not be valuing in our journey. And so today, if that's you, the altar's open. Maybe you want to come and kneel here and just say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. And I want to change it right now. Maybe you want to come and pray for a family member or a friend, or maybe you want to come and pray for, you know, just for strength to keep moving forward and doing the right things, regardless of the challenge. Maybe you want to come and join our church family. Maybe you want to come and uh, come for baptism. Well, whatever it is, we're going to stand right now. Go ahead and stand. And Charles is going to lead us as we sing today. The altar's open. And so let's step out and let's make the statement, the declaration, and the decision that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Charles, lead us.
you've dealt with some issues, I know that that could be a little personal. And so if you're sitting here and you, you've, you're, you've gotten divorced and you're remarried and you're sitting there wondering, like, well, what does God think of me? God thinks of you as a person that he died for and that he loves with all of his heart. And while, you know, yesterday may not have been ideal for you and your journey, what I do know is this, is that today and the rest of your life can be exactly what God intended. So walk with God, serve God, find a place where you can be a part of the family of God, making that difference. If you're a person who has been looking for revenge, person who's trying to, to, to go after something, maybe a person who's not been loving their enemy as they should, like, hey, just turn it around. The beautiful thing of the power of the Word of God is just simply this, is that you never get to the point where you can't make it right. And so walk out of here today and just simply say, hey, God's Word said it, I'm going to do it. I know there's that old bumper sticker from way back that said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. Drop out the middle part. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. If God said it, it's truth, and that settles it. Live according to God's Word. God bless you. The altar's open. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Have a great day. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this journey of faith in Jesus Christ. So send us an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, well, we're here to help you. So just reach out to us. We'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. And if you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, then go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.